everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, you started the intro too fast, Knockrider. I didn't have time <laughs> to think of anything. <laughs> no smart... Uh, man, what words are we not allowed Co- to say Corey, on this meat getting... joke, Knockrider? There we go. Let's go with that one. On, uh, meat on today's episode... Ask? You'll find out on today's episode. Yep, we'll cover the latest in a series of supply chain attacks, although this is a different kind of supply chain attack, uh, targeting manufacturing in the United States. Uh, We'll cover some massive security breaches, uh, thanks to a flashcard app. And then we'll go into an update to a decades-old statute that could potentially change how cyber criminals are are, uh, prosecuted. Wow, prosecuted is the word I'm looking for. Uh, from now until forever. That's okay. As I've said before, I, I, I know all the best words. Mark, I'll help you out. Yeah. All right. Stable Whatever. genius let's over just, here. Let's get rolling with the news. So let's start off with our first story of the week. And it's actually, it's a pretty big one. Uh, last week... JBS, the world's largest meatpacking company, suffered a unspecified security incident that shut down operations in both the United States and Australia uh, over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Some info on JBS, they're responsible for slaughtering over 20% of all of U.S. cattle each year, which means that this attack could have a pretty big impact on the meat supply chain. Uh, And while when this originally uh, was disclosed by them, they said unspecified. I mean, we all kind of know exactly what kind of cyber attack tends to shut down processing yeah. at a facility like this. So, um, so for instance, you're saying uh, after being forced vegan by ransomware, JBS says until we meet again. God, that was terrible. <laughs> yes, after being forced vegan. Okay, that's that's the worst joke you've made yet. Uh, how how about don't play chicken with security? Boo. <laughs> Where's the beef? Okay. Continuing. Uh, it was. By the way, I, how, some of these are mine, but uh, I'm actually sharing some of the jokes from your own threat researchers in a chat we had when we first saw yep. this story. Um, and as you kind of mentioned there, uh, it was just a few days later, the FBI attributed this attack to the Revel, Revel, however you pronounce them. Uh, th- yeah, we had that argument the last time we gave you an update. We're going to continue Revel. having Revel. this argument every single time we talk about them, I have a feeling. Uh, they're the ransomware group that's best known for the Soto no Kibi ransomware as a service variant uh, that's been around for, what, three years now, four years now, it feels like, and just a never-ending cycle of hitting additional organizations. In fact, it was just last March where they stated they're going to start going after cyber insurance providers, uh, just like AXA, who we chatted about last week, who got hit with ransomware uh, after announcing they were pulling the plug on ransomware extortion coverage from their insurance policies. Yeah. And by the way, it should be obvious by now, but that's why we suspect this is ransomware, despite the fact it's actually unspecified from JBS themselves. Yep. Exactly. Uh, so... Interestingly enough, by the time that we're recording this now, JBS has said they've recovered from the attack um, and resumed operations, but they've made no statement on whether or not they've paid the yeah. ransom. Or, or if it's ransom, to be frank. They did, I mean, some other hints even before the FBI, they did claim that their backup was unaffected, 
So even bringing up backup, you know, I guess there's other cyber attacks that you might have to recover from too, but I, I think that was kind of a hint that the ransomware didn't completely put them out. And they also claimed that there wasn't any evidence that whatever this cyber attack was, ransomware, uh, it, it, there was no evidence of it affected customer, partner, or employee data. Uh, no evidence, uh, being a company ourselves, you know, that's what you say when you're not, you know, you can't 100% unequivocally say it, but you're pretty sure. Uh, so who knows for sure? But, you know, I, I, I trust them. If you, there's no it's, evidence, there's I mean, no it's evidence. one of those things where what kind of cyber attack causes a company to have to shut down production? Like it's ransomware 99% of the yeah. time. And that's just like where we're at now. DDoS. Yeah. Okay. I guess DDoS, true. But like, I mean, aside, I, man, there actually haven't been very many massive and, DDoSs and, lately. And, and Sony Pictures Attack, that wasn't ransomware. They just basically took, locked up all their computers and took their data. They weren't asking for a ransom in that Sony Pictures Attack, were they? They were just but ticked off over they, a movie. They literally they, they deleted all the data. So there was nothing you could do unless you recovered from backup. Okay, fine. There are a few things <laughs> that are not ransomware. That said, but we, we we agree with the FBI's statement. It's pretty clear this is ransomware, -y. which makes it really the latest in just a series of cyber attacks against supply chain companies. Like there was the pipeline uh, last month now um, that caused a pretty widespread disruption for about a week because of the ransomware attack. Now this one only brought down meatpacking for a couple of days. It sounds like, but even then, like when you're responsible for twenty percent of cattle in the united states like that'll have a little bit of a disruption for maybe a couple days or so it just like you, most of our supply chains especially in the grocery business these days seem to be like the just-in-time model where you don't keep around a lot of stuff you get it just in time to sell it and then get restocked right away so something like this that's will... why supply chains are so important yeah it does make me feel good about you know sometimes when we go over our predictions every year we get a 50 percent hit rate that year but uh, we had a prediction, was it one year or two years ago? Anyways, our industrial control and manufacturing ransomware prediction did hit a little bit with that one aluminum smelter. 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 An unfortunate <laughs> but, uh, smelting accident. <laughs> Schwartz. My Schwartz is bigger than yours. <laughs> I don't know if you even know that movie, do you? I have seen Spaceballs. It's the <laughs> Spaceballs only movie I own good. on VHS. Oh, you rock. Uh, I think I had it on Laserdisc. Anyway, <laughs> pop pop, Corey. <laughs> uh, anyways, now I'm trying to. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, between the oil pipeline and this, and, and many others, it, it's I, I feel very vindicated that we were right on when pointing out that ransomware's next target after healthcare would be these types of manufacturing, industrial control system, anything like you say that requires the supply chain and just in time delivery. Uh, it's, if you need just in time, that means uptime is important to you, which means ransomware has a clear way to get into to, 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 to mess you up. Yep. So really, like, I mean, I feel like our predictions around ICS ransomware are a bit of a gimme. Uh, yes, it, we were a couple years late, aside from the schmelting accident. Early. Or, or, a couple of years early. early. Yes. <laughs> I mean, ransomware targeting ICS makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Like these are industries where you cannot afford any downtime whatsoever. And manufacturing, like meat manufacturing in this case, man, that sounds disgusting. 
is another area where you can't afford. By the way, let, let's not get into factory meat meat factories. They are kind of disgusting if you think about it. If you like meat, I recommend you don't think about it. I'm honestly one document one documentary away from probably going vegan. And going vegan, I yeah, love I some meats enough that I'm just specifically not watching some documentaries on that because i know it'll push me over the edge. normal sustainable farming makes me feel better like we've eaten meat for a long time and back in the 40s you had farmers that actually cared about their cattle yep. but now it's gross um, anyways we're diverting anyways uh, but I, I think one of the things to talk about here is yeah i that's why we made a prediction since we thought it was obvious extrapolation of moving to another target that has critical need and by critical need what about the potential for loss of life? Because, you know, this was one of our arguments way back in the healthcare days. But what about this one, Mark? Could this type of attack endanger human life? I don't think that's like a, I mean, it's a stretch, but I don't think it's, you know, a complete impossibility. Because when you're impacting a food supply chain where, like, people rely on food, obviously. And if you impact it enough, then people could potentially go hungry. Now, this is also an well, area. It makes me think early in on COVID too, right? You remember when, you know, some of the worry was just the food supply chain, because if you have people that just can't be together in these factories, now that's even worse if there's downtime. So I, I think you're right that it's like a, a long shot. It would only happen if this was a sustained attack and it went after multiple but it's it's funny how this one attack could affect 20% of US meat supply at least for a week you know that's a a pretty big thing it's also interesting that it doesn't fit well revil aren't like a I forget the name of them, Dark but the side. one we talked about recently. Yeah, they're 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 not so. Oh, we're Robin Hood hackers. We're just we're just going after the bad corporations. Revil does tend to avoid any. I, I mean, they don't want to make big waves, and it sounds like they might have made a bigger wave here than they suspected by going after JBS. They they found a good target that might have been lucrative from a ransomware perspective, but it sounded like they might have also hit a target that got them more attention than they want. I mean, it is like kind of a game for ransomware authors where your goal is to make money but not get like you know you don't want to tick off the fbi so much that suddenly you're in their scope of people are going to go try and shut down and potentially throw behind bars well in this case the white house even called russia about it because oh by the way revil is very much a cyber criminal organization but they are russian based so i wouldn't call this state-sponsored hacking at all it seems more criminal but they are in russia so it, it, apparently, the White House gave Russia a call again. Take care of your hackers, you guys. I'm sure they'll get right on it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Putin's listening. <laughs> I'm sure he's jumping on whatever Biden asked him to do. Yeah, I'm my. Yeah, I guarantee they're best friends, right? I'm sure they, <laughs> especially in the world of cyber and. Uh, I, I imagine Biden hugging Putin's bare chest on a horseback. Yeah, I. Thank you for putting that image into my mind. That's disgusting. You're welcome. <laughs> Happy Monday, listeners. Happy Monday. Uh, so, I mean, takeaways from this, like, it's all but guaranteed a, a, a ransomware attack. And it sounds like they recovered fairly quickly. Now, whether that's because they paid the ransom or because they had a robust backup and restoration process and business continuity plan, like, ready to go, we don't know because they haven't really... Like said any details about the actual incident, uh, but it does 
seem to look like that is the case. Like they were prepared for this and they seem to have been able to recover pretty quickly. Like I'd say a couple days of downtime for a massive ransomware attack is basically like that's on the it's side not horrible. That's the good side of it. Like obviously you'd uh, want on to the be flip better. side, it, it, it points out that, you know, this is why BCDR plans, uh, business continuity, disaster recovery are so important because I imagine for, for JBS two days was a ton of business. You know, we're saying it's a pretty good recovery, but being down for two days, imagine if Amazon were down for two days. You know, that's hundreds of millions of dollars, I would expect. So so the faster you can recover, the better. And it's all about how how well you've done that that business continuity disaster recovery plan. Yep. The uh, exciting part of cybersecurity. Yeah, what we all want to do, spend all the work on something that only happens once in a while. <laughs> I'm joking. It is it's a worthwhile hard to do. It, it, it's, it's hard, human nature-wise, it's hard to do this, but it's one of the best investments you can make the day you need it. Yep. Great advice. Uh, so moving on, uh, as you may suspect, the United States military stores nuclear weapons at military bases located in friendly nations uh, around Europe. Uh, it, I mean, it makes sense. We've got hostile foreign countries that were. It makes sense, but I, I would assume, I, like, I don't know if that would be like public guessable knowledge, right? I mean, uh, hearing it in hindsight, it makes total sense. And uh, some of the bases, you know, I lived in Germany as a kid because my dad's military service, uh, and obviously some of the bases we took in war, like a lot of the base properties, were literally Hitler properties that. We owned as part of a treaty. We've since given back a lot of them. So we've taken them. So in those cases, you know, we were there for a military purpose. They weren't always a friendly country. And and I guess you could see. But I wouldn't suspect, you know, I wouldn't just have assumed that we actually had nuclear launch points in anywhere besides America. Because it seems like it would be a hard thing to do. And my understanding is Europe doesn't really. A lot of European countries don't like this. Oh no, especially they especially not 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 knowing where this is. Yeah, not knowing where they are. But but anyways, keep going. Anyways, details about these locations are also understandably supposed to be secret. Uh, there's supposedly around six locations throughout Europe, and the government does a lot to keep both the location secret and details about them secret as well. Uh, to prevent, you know, attack against them. Yeah, yeah. Or if you have a nuclear <laughs> a nuclear bomb hidden somewhere, you don't want people to know where it is. You don't want to know what security controls you have around. You don't want them to know where the cameras are, how often the patrolling is, when they change duty, all that kind of stuff. Even down to, I think it's interesting, dress words. Obviously, it makes sense, but since you and I aren't into physical security, we don't think about a special duress word in case someone is holding us to gunpoint when one of our friends comes up to us. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as you also might suspect, the protocols around these nuclear arms storage areas are also complex, and they're complex enough that soldiers have to typically memorize them, and they've been resorting to using online flashcards to help memorize that information, things like uh, Chegg and Quizlet and Cram. Which, by the way, flashcards for learning are not a bad thing. Yeah. Just <laughs> but the key word you said there, which will be interesting, is online. Correct. <laughs> yes. Uh, you would think with classified information, you'd probably use like paper flashcards and then light them on fire when you're they're do you're done. But in the case of this, uh, they've been using online. Swallow the ashes. <laughs> Some bury the the waste yes. that comes out after the ashes. Um, some soldiers, though, have been using online. Oh, I forgot. I, 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 I need to get my bleep for this week to bury the shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is not even a real one? They won't know that if he bleeps it, right? Right. 
unfortunately, uh, believe it or not, these apps were not designed to safeguard information related to nuclear stockpiles and defending them. Really? That Quizlet app that my daughter uses, that's not designed for nuclear security? No, it was not. Oh, um, oh. Bummer. So by searching through cards uploaded to these various apps, some journalists at Bellingcat discovered the alleged six locations in Europe where the U.S. stores their nuclear arsenal just by searching for terms known to be associated with nuclear weapons like uh, protective aircraft shelter or pass, uh, weapons storage and security systems or WS3, uh, vault. And basically, as they were searching, they'd find other flashcards that would teach them other new terms and acronyms to help them find additional cards through these apps. By the way, a little pause here, but Bellingcat, I mean, I remember it was just, I don't know, five episodes ago where you and I had not heard of Bellingcat before, and pow, now they have another really good scoop. Yeah. So, hey guys, if you haven't been visiting Bellingcat, check them out. We certainly are. Props to them. Um, so their journalists found cards dating back to 2013. Uh, and through these cards, they found plenty of sensitive information uh, like locations of backup generators, uh, how to val validate special identification uh, for restricted areas, camera locations, everything that you pr yeah. probably wouldn't want an intruder to know about. I didn't even know there is this thing called a RAB, a restricted area badge, let alone how I would validate whether it was a real one or a fake one. Yeah. But hey, now we know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Basically, most of these apps... Uh, or at least many of them default to making flashcards public and users have the option of keeping them private. But even the public ones, they'll include like usernames of who created them, sometimes even profile pictures from LinkedIn. So not only do you get like the information, now you potentially know personnel that work at these locations, which you could use to either social engineer or something much more devious as well if you were trying to gain access to them too. Like this is a pretty big security breach from something as simple as just trying to use flashcards to memorize information yeah i imagine this is not intentional like uh, on one hand to be nice it's hard to fault the soldiers there's a lot of things they have to memorize and hey flashcards are a good way on the flip side you could look at it at what a stupid mistake i mean why would you put nuclear secrets on this public SaaS app that you have no control with and not even think to to make it private so it's a mix of just this really bad mistake, but also something that's unintentional. I, I presume the guy guarding a nuclear vault isn't a cybersecurity expert. So to a normal person, do you think about the ramifications when you're, I don't know, accept, ex, accepting that Facebook questionnaire survey or, or deciding to use some new cloud application to do something really quick, like learn from flashcards? So... It's interesting. It resulted in what I think some of the, the the chief officers are calling a flagrant breach of security, but it was it also is a seemingly forgivable mistake for people that aren't really meant to know everything about cybersecurity. Right. But also like even if you were to like set these private, that just means private from other users. That doesn't I mean, it means yeah, the, company the company itself still has access to now these potentially sensitive. There, there should be a policy that yes. all of this stuff should never be anywhere outside of the US government's assets. <laughs> Make a freaking flashcard app on your own local server to do this kind of thing. Or to your point, use paper. Sometimes paper is better. And this kind of highlights an area of cybersecurity that people often gloss over like it's called open source intelligence basically using public information like this google searches um other applications to gain 
sensitive information about an organization. Like you might be able to uh, use this to like figure out information about internal IT infrastructure at a company yep. just by searching through publicly available uh, information. Just just so users can always learn the new acronyms, OSINT is what goes with open source intelligence. And yeah, I agree. And uh, part of what this story I found interesting is how Bellingcat knew a few words that might be related to nuclear sites, but it, it's it's that chain of weakness with OSINT where just a little bit of a leak gives you a little more information and that information leads to more information. And, and it, it turns out to be this tree of information that you often see even in OSINT programs like Multigo and others, where it's surprising if you can just get a little bit of information, how much more information sometimes results from that. So yeah, very good point, Mark. Yeah, and so, I mean, this basically boils down to if you're trying to safeguard secrets, like I can't imagine many of our listeners are responsible for safeguarding nuclear stockpiles, uh, but you still probably have trade secrets in your company or information that you wouldn't want publicly disclosed. You have to be careful about what SaaS apps you're using uh, with this data because maybe you're not setting them up correctly and that could expose it like S3 bucket issues we've seen previously. Um, It doesn't prevent the company itself potentially from accessing the information unless you're using encryption at rest and encryption in transit. Like there's a lot of potential areas you might have overlooked when it comes to storing your data that could enable someone else to view it as well. Yeah. And this is hard because it goes against human nature, but just think about the unintentional consequences. Like the S3 bucket that Mark brought up is a great example. You're working with some outside person that you want to transfer some data really quickly. You're like, oh, I'll just throw it on this S3 bucket because it's convenience and I already have access. But but think about it, it a little bit before doing that or, or trying a new app or using a new file sharing service online. You know, consider what human nature means for work. If we're doing things, we want to get it done quickly and we want to do whatever our business task is with our our outside partners. But while it's hard, try to pause and just make sure you're covering your basis. If it's it's non-sensitive information, go at it. Who cares? I throw non-sensitive presentations on Dropbox still now, even though for sensitive documents, we have a, a, a file store that we only rely on here at WatchGuard. Uh, so it's fine for non-sensitive, but think about the sensitivity of the data before you do anything new with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so moving on now to our next story, uh, some Man, I feel like Corey's going to ream me over this after all. This is the fanboy. This was my little Trojan oh, story. <laughs> I get all this Apple fanboy stuff. Now I get to like just make fun of Android. Anyways. <laughs> Before we dive into the story, I do feel like I need to point out that I personally hate Google's data collection practices and anti-privacy practices. And I'm a massive fan of Apple's, at least like it looks like they're trying to help users privacy, even though like I'm still not entirely convinced there isn't some ulterior motive. There is. And to be fair, you and I joke about Apple versus Android all the time, but I like Google as much as Apple for different reasons. And, and I don't for a second believe that Apple does things just for my own good. I think it's they just don't want to deal with government stuff. Anyways. Uh, Recently unredacted documents from a lawsuit against Google have exposed that Google's own executives and engineers knew how difficult the company has made it for smartphone users to keep their location data private. Uh, This case comes after Arizona's attorney general uh, filed a lawsuit against Google, claiming they illegally continued 
gathering location data after users opted out of it on their mobile devices. Uh, the documents have revealed that Google continued to collect location data even when users turned off various location sharing settings, uh, made popular privacy settings harder to find, and even pressured ODMs like LG to explicitly hide private, uh, some of these settings precisely because users really liked them. It sounded like I, I, the article I was reading for this didn't have all the technical details. I wish it did. But it sounded like one of the ways Android or Google might be collecting local location data even when you had disabled stuff is, is as I think you know, whether it's Apple or Android, the phones have like OS-wide settings where you can disable Android's location gathering stuff. But then there's third-party apps where you know you ex have a third-party app, it has its own permissions, and you might accept something on a third-party app that you've disabled elsewhere. And I, I wasn't clear, but part of the story made it sound like one of the places Google would be get if if you accepted location sharing for even one of your third party apps, even if you had disabled it in other OS places, Google would get that data along with the third party app. Yeah, itself. that's basically their excuse. Like you can disable it globally on your device and then do it piecemeal per app. Like maybe I want to allow uh, Uber Eats to know my location so I can figure out where I need my food delivered or something. If you enable it for that one app, their excuses, then Google gets it as well just through their platform, um, which, I mean, it makes sense, but like... Te technically, I guess I could see an argument, but privacy-wise, it's it's kind of a big hole. They should, even if they are inadvertently collecting it, they shouldn't store it. And that's it. the whole point of this is that, like, yes, they may technically, like, that may be a requirement in order to facilitate some of these, like, platforms that they have for apps, but they do a pretty dang good job of trying to hide that from their users, like hide the fact that they're collecting this data, even though you've uh, maybe you've tried to block Google from getting access to it. And that's the whole point. Like they're being a bit shady when it comes to how they handle users privacy around location data. Like the former vice president that oversaw Google Maps even admitted that the only way uh, Google wouldn't be able to figure out your home and your work locations is if you intentionally threw it off by setting your home and work addresses to other random locations. Like they have enough metadata about you to figure out exactly where you live, and where, where you, you live work. and work, probably where you shop most often too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, physically, it's honestly like it's I've had a few creepy interactions with Google. Like I've got Android Auto in my car. It's one of those like I like it. It's super convenient being able to look up a like directions or location on my computer. Uh, through like Google Chrome or sign into my Google account through Google Maps, Lo hop onto my car, plug in my phone, and it will automatically suggest like, oh, you just searched for this 10 minutes ago. Do you want to Here's the sale, pull yeah. up navigation to that? Like it's convenient, yeah. but it's also- Or in Maps, I just want to take me home instead of having to type the address. I, I mean, and you're, you're right. And that's the problem with this. There is so much good convenience from it. And yet there's so it's, it's creepy. It's like, yeah, it, it, it's there. There's ways bad actors could take advantage of it too. My family pointed this out to me the other day when we hopped in the car, like on a Friday afternoon. And that seems like, uh, so I used to go play back when there wasn't a pandemic, I'd go play card games at a board game shop, a specific one, uh, every Friday afternoon after work. And now if I'm in my car at that point in time, uh, it'll automatically suggest directions <laughs> to go to that board game shop every yeah. Friday at around like five o'clock in the afternoon. It's it's yeah. creepy how much they know about like your behavior 
where you may be going at any specific point in time based off of where you're at and like what you're doing at that point in time. And by the way, that's one where the creepiness shows up because sometimes their suggestions are really helpful. But if you've literally gone to this place every Friday, chances are you don't need directions. You know your way. We're not that dumb yet, Google, even though we use maps for everything. <laughs> so that's when it gets creepy, when you, you know the directions so well that you don't even think about it. And yet Google reminds you, hey, Mark. I know where you're going. Yeah. And it's like another one, like when if I'd hop in my car, like on a Tuesday morning uh, during a work week, it would suggest SeaTac because that's generally when I'd fly out for work events was like on a Tuesday morning. Like it's really creepy how much info they can gather about you. Now, I haven't gone through recently and like hardened my phone for privacy. But after this, I feel like I need to go through and just start unchecking checkboxes again. I, I Mark, it's too late. I feel like, at least for me, this is why I'm just never going to be a criminal or anything, because there's no way they wouldn't catch me. I, I, I mean, I would be smart enough to throw away my phone, but they would know everything about what I did before that point. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. Law enforcement through at least uh, warrants have access to all this data as well. So yeah, you have to imagine. And this is a Google story, but... Honestly, it, it's I don't think it is a Google only story because I imagine the same story you could throw in ISPs, telco, uh, some of the stuff Apple does not. I mean, there is some difference there where Apple does not store this information anymore. Uh, but, you know, it feels like it's almost an industry thing because we've accepted how big data can help us. It's the convenience you're talking about, but we haven't just found that magic gray line between getting the convenience we want to have from this without just screwing ourselves in every other way. If Forget law enforcement. They're the good guys. If any bad actor ever got access to this, there's so much bad that could be done. Yeah, agreed entirely. And I mean, I, I think it was one of our recent predictions where basically privacy is going to come to a head here soon uh, because People are starting to notice this. just how much data these giant tech companies have on each of us. And without any regulation or any safeguards in place, aside from, you know, the company obviously doesn't want to get hacked. But what's the actual no. ramification if some of this troves of data gets leaked? Yep. Horrible. Yeah. Anyways, anyway, we'll see how the case goes. Uh, I, I think the only takeaway here is double check whatever operating system you use. Hey, we all use location data. I mean, I, I I used a lot of DoorDash during the pandemic, wanted to support local businesses and to save myself from from getting it. So uh, it is very convenient having a map that, that guides people to where you are. So, But pay attention to that data. Try to set the permissions. And then hopefully our law will properly, you know, I don't think Google necessarily, well, maybe, I guess some of the insiders seem to suggest Google knows what they're doing. That's the part that scares me. But I think in the end, our government is is dyslexic and, and messed up as it is. We'll eventually get to what's right for all of us for privacy. So hopefully this case will land in the right place. I'm much more cynical on that, and I feel like it's going to be <laughs> a lot longer before anything actually comes of any of this. I'm trying to drop my blood pressure, Mark. After this year, I am kind of cynical about government, but uh, still trying to be hopeful. Anyway, speaking of government, um, so most hacking-related crimes end up being brought to justice under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the CFAA from 1986, which, among other things, basically states um, it makes it accessing a computer without authorization or in a way that exceeds your authorization, it's illegal. And I would say when, when it was made, it felt pretty clear that it's... 
it's unauthorized access. I mean, they literally say unauthorized access. And whenever I th hear unauthorized, it makes me feel external entities. Because if you're internal to that computer system or whatever, you're, you're typically authorized. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so back in 2018, a former Georgia police sergeant was convicted and sentenced to 18 months in prison uh, under the CFAA for selling access to the state's license plate information database in exchange for money. Basically, he would take a payment, he'd hop in his patrol car, search up a license plate, and give the information of that to whoever the buyer was. Uh, he ended up getting caught in like an FBI sting for like a $5,000 yeah. bounty, basically, for some information. Someone felt like he was kind of, uh, what was the word, pressuring him for something. So they shaking they him down for money. A rat in the sting. By the way, before we get into the CAA, CFAA part, which I think is the, you know, he was prosecuted under the CFAA. I feel like this is wrong. You know, throw the CFA uh, aside for a second. This should clearly be illegal. A cop should not be able to use their valid cop credentials that they use to search private data because they're law enforcement for police work, or often police work that they, they get permission from, approval from, sometimes even court orders from. To, to do this stuff, they should not be able to use that just to share, to sell information to private entities. So it's clearly wrong. There clearly should be some law that, that this dude should be caught, in my opinion, and somehow prosecuted. I don't know what the level of, you know, I don't know if his punishment met the level of this particular crime, but I, I, I personally believe this should be wrong. Yeah, it's one of those but, things where you look at it and you say, that's illegal or it should be illegal. Like, it's clearly wrong. Yeah, yeah. what we're talking about, I may agree with too. So Exactly. Um, so he yeah. was convicted to 18 months in prison under the CFAA for that action. But last week, the Supreme Court reversed his conviction on the grounds that the CFAA does not make it a crime to obtain information from a computer when that person has authorized access to that machine, even if the person has improper motives. So from their uh, their uh, decision, they stated, uh, so the officer's conduct plainly flouted his department's policy, which authorized him to obtain database information only for law enforcement purposes. We must decide whether the officer also violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986, though, which blah, 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 he did not. Basically, they're saying he had authorized access to it and he did not exceed his level of authorized access to it. It's just he was clearly using it improperly, but that isn't a CFAA violation. Yeah. So to me, it was he is prosecuted under the wrong law. Not that he shouldn't be prosecuted, but and, and here's where I agree. And we might talk about this, but uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, I think even us when we used to talk about Aaron Schwartz, the CFAA is very general and generic, and that's sometimes a bad thing. I, I think you and I argue that there should be more cyber abuse acts, you know, laws and acts that talk about different type of cyber crime, because unauthorized access is not the only cyber crime out there. There's tons of different types of cyber crime now. So to have one old 1986 or whatever act that we're using to try to cover everything, it, it just is not going to work right. Uh, and I, I I think there's been a lot of issues where prosecutors and attorney generals have used the Cyber Fraud and Abuse Act to to try to prosecute things like, you know, someone sharing data from a college or or whether or not having access to a link that contains stolen goods is is bad. And and I 
I, I, I think it's been overused a number of times. So I don't think this is a bad overruling, even though I kind of agree that the, the cop should be prosecuted for something. I will say it's a pretty big overruling in that this case also went through federal courts before it got to the Supreme Court, and the federal courts upheld the original that that basically said this was against the CFAA. And, and we've seen other cases, too, where the CFAA was used in this kind of different manner. The officer's lawyer basically argued that the government's interpretation of the law would make it a crime to violate a website's terms of service or to use a business email or Zoom account for personal purposes if an employer had a policy against doing so. He said this construction would brand most Americans criminals on a daily basis, which when you think about it, yeah, basically uh, their their argument was he violated his uh, company's policy, his company being the police department, to abuse his his authorized access in a way that they didn't want him to, Um, which like other examples would be like scraping uh, websites for academic articles, like you said, or scalping on which is the Aaron Schwartz. Yeah. And by the way, both of those cases went against them as even though anyone in the general public can get to Ticketmaster and could technically scrape the, the scrapers and in the university case, Aaron Schwartz lost. So to me, it's a big precedence change because, you know, with this new precedent, you would imagine that those cases would not have won against Schwartz and unfortunately the scalpers. By the way, again, it's a situation where I think scalping is bad. I just think you need a different act or law for it. There's so many types of cybercrime. This one really generic, generally stated law is not going to ever cover all of them. So I think lawmakers have to get on their, have to to get to work and actually add new cybersecurity laws. It's maybe get the EFFs help. 34 years old. Just think of how much technology has evolved in the last 34 years. Like the internet went from basically nothing to what it is right now. 1.0, no interaction, just informative to (laughs) everything now is a web app. We don't even have software anymore because we're using the internet to be our software. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that there needs to be an overhaul of this act to even just like better define exactly what is and what isn't illegal in this case. And I'm willing to bet that because of that massive precedent change from this ruling, like this might actually get some senators to get off their butts and start crafting some changes to that, just because this is going to hamper the uh, U.S. government's ability to prosecute people that they clearly want to prosecute, like they've done it before under yeah. this exact same And they, they, they should, by the way, yeah, I, especially I were, in this case. again, there's criminals that I want prosecuted. I, I've just, we've long argued that the CFAA is not a sufficient enough cybersecurity or cyber criminal act. It is also sad to see this change later. You know, uh, everyone falls on a different side with the Aaron Schwartz case, if you recognize it too much. But if you do know about it, Aaron Schwartz was largely kind of a well-known computer EFF guy, not a, not a criminal. And uh, the, his prosecution where this was used against him and he, you know, he lost, it was he, he committed suicide shortly after because of all of this. So uh, this precedent suggested that the case could have gone another what route and uh, maybe it would have. Yeah, very sad. But I mean, I, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of fallout from this because just because of how much is being thrown under that act. So. It's pretty much the only thing you can use, yeah. I feel like, in a lot of cybercrime, even though I think we all agree that 
that will change or should change. Maybe we'll have an episode in a few months from now when uh, we start to see some changes to cybercrime laws in the U.S. I, I think we have one of our predictions for 2022. Yeah. Hopefully it hits because that sure would be nice for many reasons. In any case, something to watch. Uh, we all want ransomware authors and, and other attackers like that to, to, to go to jail and be punished. Uh, but uh, if you care about cybersecurity law, talk to your local senators, Congress, whoever. We, we should have probably more specific laws that deal with the different types of attacks today. Agreed. I should run for office. Go for it. I'd vote for you. There's one. Just two million <laughs> more to go. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.